Thank you for listening to Spiritual Teachings with Shunyamurti, recorded live at the Sat Yoga Ashram in Costa Rica. To join us for a life-changing meditation retreat, or to make a donation to support this transformational work, please visit our website, www.satyoga.org. To access more teachings or guided meditations from Shunyamurti, please visit the members section of our website or our YouTube channel, Sat Yoga Institute. Namaste. Let's talk about the Buddha. The Buddha is a very interesting figure in history. And the information about the Buddha that has come uh, to, to the awareness of uh, archaeologists and uh, students of ancient history has changed our picture of the Buddha. And it's not <clears throat> the picture that we get from Buddhism neither from Theravada nor uh, Mahayana Buddhism, both of which uh, began f long after the Buddha's life and death. In the same sense that Christianity developed in its current forms long after the death of the person who is remembered as Jesus and uh, only recently did we find and unearth copies of some of the Gnostic Gospels at Nagamadi, but even those were not the original teachings which were orally transmitted and the, the original Christian mystery school, let's say, and its practices are lost to history or censored from history. But let's talk about the Buddha first in the, in the sense that most people think of him. And his title is usually rendered as the awakened one. What did the Buddha awaken from? And what did he awaken into? Who has some ideas about that? What did Buddha awaken from? Illusion. Illusion? What illusion? Who, who spoke? The ah. <coughs> What's that? The illusion of a world. Of a world? Mm -hmm. The illusion of suffering. The illusion of suffering. Mm -hmm. The cycle of samsara. Mm-hmm. That he was a person. Yes, that's true. Mm-hmm. Similar to that, yeah, a separate self. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. We'll start with those. We have a good assortment of insights. I think all of them are accurate. And so what did he awaken into? If he is not a person in a world and uh, not caught in the cycle of time and death and rebirth and not caught in uh, suffering, then what is he when he awakens? What remains? 
Hmm? Consciousness. Consciousness. Mm -hmm. What's meant by consciousness when you use that word? What do you actually mean? Because we think we're conscious now, right? We think we're awakened into consciousness. But clearly, we're, we're still unconscious, unless you are all Buddhas. Mm -hmm. I'm not really answering your question, but that's why I'm intrigued by your question, because I feel you awoken into being the Buddha, but I'm not sure that's like enigmatic, what that means. Wait, I didn't get your point? He, will, he, he awoke into the fact that he's the Buddha, but I'm, I can't put into words uh -huh. what that means. Okay. Well, okay, I think it would be good to get a concept for that. Yes? In the context of what you taught last night, I think what was useful was going from being identified as a body to still there being an identity, but it's bigger than a body. It could be the entirety of, of reality. It could be a galaxy. It could be, could be everyone simultaneously. But isn't it beyond even that? Mm -hmm. If there's no world, no cosmos, what, what is it beyond that? Yes? Nothing. Nothing? But it, could it be nothing? Because there was someone who awakened, who taught. Right? So. Away from that idea that there was someone that awakened? Perhaps not a someone, but not perhaps a nothing. Maybe a no thing. I'll agree with that. <laughs> emptiness. Yeah, but what is emptiness? <laughs> not. Um... Not identifying with something or someone or anything. Mm -hmm. Do you know the state of emptiness? Mm -hmm. I am emptiness. You are emptiness. And you've realized that. You are the Buddha. All the time. <laughs> Let's trade seats. Come on. I think, okay. So that's, that's interesting. If, why not all the time? Since time itself is an illusion. What would draw the emptiness into a false somethingness? Since it's, it's suffering to come into somethingness, right? Um, the, the draw of remembering again. Ah, okay. Seems like a bit of a sadomasochistic sure attitude, is. but all right. Satya, you had this on? Yeah. Also, like, just like supreme intelligence. Mm -hmm. Come back to that. So mm -hmm. mm -hmm. I think that's an excellent addition. Intelligence. Intelligence it's, itself is not a, a thing, but it's also not nothing. If it's empty, it's empty of ego. And it's empty of what we could say is actuality, but it's filled with potentiality. Right? So that's why it's that we, in a way, why Buddha is worshipped by many and why people want the Buddha nature. It's because of how full it is with the potency of the infinite creative intelligence of, of that power that can create the maya of, of an illusion of a world that unawakened beings uh, fall into and enjoy so much that they'll come back from the emptiness in it to suffer more because they enjoy their suffering. But it is, it is intelligence cannot be called either a, a thing or a no thing. So I agree with you. Yes? Isn't the essence of his thing suffering to be free from suffering? So 
regardless of what you want to call it, or names, or ideas, emptiness. It's that you're not suffering. The suffering has come to an end. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say that's his thing. I, uh, what you're talking about now are what are called the four Aryan truths. And I, they were really an answer to a question, because pe the first people who came to him were suffering. And so he acted as their doctor and said, well, the diagnosis is this. You, you're suffering because of craving, and uh, we eliminate craving by being in nirvana, the state of total non-suffering bliss, and, uh, and you're free. And how do you do that? Well, here's an eightfold uh, recipe, a prescription. Uh, take this, uh, uh, these eight tablets every day and you'll be uh, completely free of suffering. So, but that was the first teaching, but then there were many more, right, that, that had to do with, uh, with, with other levels of consciousness beyond suffering. Satchitananda. Mm -hmm. Satchitananda, mm -hmm. indeed, I would say, is a uh, conceptual representation of the state that he was in. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, to sum up, the difference between a Buddha and a sentient being, as it, they are usually called, is the different concepts of entity versus fantasy. Those who have not awakened to their Buddhahood yet are in a state in which they believe they are an entity. You're a someone. You're a something. In a world full of things, full of entities. And what Buddha discovered is, that's a fantasy. There are no things, there are no people. There is a fantasy of things and people and all other kinds of objects that one can imagine. But all of it is a fantasy. And what the Buddha discovered and what it, Ramana Maharshi discovered and every sage who has achieved that same state of liberation has discovered is that once you have eliminated all fantasies in your mind, I put that in plural because you have more than one fantasy. This is the whole problem of the ego consciousness. It's not unified. It's not, oh, well, I'll just let go of this fantasy and then I'm free. What you find out as you enter the path is that you have dissociated fragments or nodes of consciousness, each with their own fantasy. And those fantasies are in conflict, which often lead to a paralysis of will. Do I want this or do I want that? And so the process of purification or sadhana, the spiritual development, is to eliminate all the fantasies. And when there are no fantasies left, what is realized is that there's no world.
And there is no duality, because duality itself is a fantasy. Fantasies are structured as dualities. And they are structured as, uh, as a, a hero on a quest. All fantasies have, in some sense, that kind of a structure, someone. Now, the hero can also be an anti-hero. There are fantasies in which one is serving the dark lord or an accomplice of the dark forces and, and, and should suffer or deserves to be in a hell realm and in fact the fantasy of that hell realm is acted out. And there are other fantasies of angelic kinds of uh, attainments or the fantasy of being on the search for the pearl of great price or the fantasy to get rid of something that is causing your suffering, which is what the, the quest in the Lord of the Rings is about. It's an anti-quest. They're not looking for something. They're trying to get rid of this ring. You know, how do, who will take it? No, I'm not going to. Gandalf won't take it. You know, the, uh, the elfin queen won't take it. I forgot her name. Uh, but uh, nobody's going to take it. You've got to throw it into this fire in Mordor, or, or you can't get rid of it. So... There's always a, uh, a thing that you are looking for that will either give you power or will take away a kind of power that uh, you realize will only bring harm and suffering. And so these quests, which can be in degraded form and turn into simply an object of desire who will be one's shining knight, one's uh, the, the prince who will kiss the sleeping maiden, or, uh, or the, uh, the quest for the dragon who is uh, protecting the pile of gold and one will be rich, or it's, uh, it's to, be, uh, uh, to have the 77 virgins, is it, in heaven if you uh, die on a jihad for Allah or whatever. But there's always, a, there's always a reward for the attainment of something or the sacrifice of something. And so if we analyze our dreams and our fantasies that we become aware of and even the kinds of movies we like to watch, we will discover that they, those, those same fantasies that Hollywood is clued into and makes billions of dollars off of are simply uh, imaginary representations of fantasies within our own subconscious levels of mind. So Buddha got rid of all the fantasies. Now, the reason why most people don't become Buddhas, they like their fantasies. That's why some will come back, even from emptiness, to try another fantasy. Let's put one more DVD into the machine and see how it plays. But uh, until you are tired of all your fantasies and you recognize that the result of, of all these fantasies it does not lead to any improvement in your quality of life, and in fact you're wasting your time, and uh, these fantasies are blocks to the development of your intelligence and the development of your um, capacity for transcendence. They are imaginary representations of the very transcendence that they prevent. 
And this is why we, it's useful to understand the mind has the different registers, an imaginary, a symbolic, and a real, so that you can uh, put your, your fantasy of, of even attaining Buddhahood into an imaginary form and think you can come to a retreat at an ashram and you'll attain Buddhahood. That would be a very imaginary way of going about it. However, you could also attend that retreat in a symbolic state of consciousness and realize, well, I'm not going to get Buddhahood by just being here, and I'm not going to get Buddhahood by just listening to somebody talking about it, but I might get Buddhahood if I make use of that information symbolically to deconstruct all my fantasies and then be free of the illusion that there's even a world where there's an ashram or any need of it because you're no longer looking for anything and you're no longer anyone. And it doesn't matter where your body gets parked, but your being is uh, beyond and in, inconceivable to those who are still uh, in the, the search and so this is moving from the symbolic to the real. And the real itself has different layers in which the first real you'll find as the result of resolving the conflict between emotion and intelligence. This is the real conflict because what do the uh, imaginary quests, whether it's a romantic or sexual or even pornographic kind of a quest, that's also a quest, or a quest for a lot of money in the capitalist system, or a quest for uh, power, or, or you become a boxer and your quest is to prove you're the toughest guy on the, in the world, you know? Uh, whatever your, your quest is, whatever you want to prove, whatever trophy you want to gain, it, it's, uh, it, it's on that imaginary level. Uh, but it provides emotional satisfactions. And that's why we get addicted to it, because emotions produce chemicals in, in the body that we like, endorphins and adrenaline and even DMT in your pineal gland. You can produce all kinds of, of uh, emotions based on the chemistry of the body. The body is a, a chemical factory and it'll produce according to what your mind is imagining, uh, feeling states that will go with those. That's why if somebody watches a, an, an adventure movie with all kinds of special effects and they identify with the character going through these incredible uh, adventures, they, they will feel vicariously th that same feeling and it's a high. That's why people go through it. They get a high, but it, is it a real high uh, in the sense of getting highly beyond the illusion? No, it's going into the illusion and, uh, and taking all of the juice out of it, but the result of it is dukkha. It ultimately produces suffering and disappointment because it was only a fantasy. And because it's only a fantasy, it's temporary. And so the Buddha taught about impermanence, that everything that's temporary ends up uh, leaving you uh, high and dry, shipwrecked, lost, and realizing you wasted your life searching for 
uh, a non-existent holy grail. And most religions are simply productions of a similar kind of fantasy. So I have no interest in religion or in offering you uh, a religious uh, model of another holy grail. Okay, so even becoming the Buddha could be an imaginary holy grail. And we don't want to treat it like that. And to not treat it like that, one has to have a very clear intelligence that is not at all contaminated by emotion. So this is the first purification. To be able to see things clearly without sentimentality and, and without the coloring that comes from a sense of lack within that wants to, to get high off of something and uh, will deceive itself in order to be able to produce uh, a temporary good feeling, right? This is what falling in love is often about, a projection of, of a fantasy, but that cannot last. And then usually it's negative opposite fantasy takes its place and one has to go through uh, that kind of uh, agony. And so any kind of a fantasy will also produce its binary opposite. The Lord of Light will soon show itself as the Dark Lord, and vice versa. So we have to recognize that so long as there is a someone in a world, there is duality in which uh, the impermanence of every situation will uh, lead to a, uh, a failure of the achievement of the intention that one had uh, begun with. And, uh, and a loss, I think the greatest I issue is this. In the becoming actualized, you lose your potentiality. You lose your potency. To fall from Buddhahood means that you, you, you leave the infinite for the finite. And as soon as you become a person in the world, you are used goods. Your merchandise that will have been defiled. And most people start out life already feeling defiled in childhood uh, and uh, tainted and unwantable as an object of somebody else's quest or uh, as someone who deserves to complete a quest and gain some pearl of great price or some other uh, attainment, or uh, someone who must live in such a, uh, a psychopathic kind of mind state that one uh, is willing to, uh, to live for enjoyment without a frame of reference of uh, good or evil, moral or immoral which leads to other kinds of problems. If you're in duality, you better have a dharma, because without that, there's chaos. And uh, only the dharma will enable the drama of life to come to a denouement, which means the elimination of the knots, the karma. And uh, instead of a tragedy, one can end up with a comedy in which one is able to enjoy life to the full and not to be uh, trapped in, uh, in a hell realm created by the karmic backlash of one's uh, 
irresponsible way of treating reality. So in the ancient world, all of this was well known, and the people who completed their psycho-spiritual development and, uh, and left emotion behind for pure intelligence and left the, the entity illusion uh, and, uh, and the fantasy illusion, the recognition that uh, the world is fantasy and we're able to create a culture, an Aryan culture. That's the word Aryan means that. It means the fulfillment of, uh, of the maturity of the psycho-spiritual potentiality of consciousness, which later became translated as being noble. Because nobility, in, in the sense of virtue, is part of it. And why is one virtuous? For the simple reason that one is no longer interested in, in attaining objects, so there's no more greed, there's no more attachment, there's no more uh, lust, there's no more uh, arrogance of the ego. All of that has been left behind. And so the character becomes noble, but one isn't doing it in order to say, well, look how noble my character is, because that would be an ignoble uh, attitude, because it would be, again, egoic. But th those who have gone beyond that then are, are capable of being leaders, are capable of guiding the world. And this is where Plato got his idea of the philosopher king. And, uh, and this was the, uh, the actual um, organizing principle behind the order of the Magi, who uh, were a, a, the priesthood of the Aryans at a very early period. And, you know, the Aryans included not only those of Iran, Iran means Aryan, it's the same word, but of India and of even all the way to China and the Greeks and the ancient Egyptians, all of those peoples were Aryans. The Turks, uh, the Turks, of course, were not living in Turkey in those days. They were actually uh, in, in uh, Mongolia and, and China, what it is today, and they, they uh, migrated. But uh, these, uh, these were different tribes of Aryans. They later separated into tribes. They were originally a, a unified uh, culture. And, uh, and they uh, attempted to create a world in which, by having transcended the illusions, one could... Uh, could produce consciously a paradise because you are using your creative imagination to produce the illusion of a world in which everyone is happy and in which the, the ecology of the world itself would not require predators and prey and would not require that duality. And so this was part of the intention, but it would have to begin with the human uh, consciousness becoming non-predatory, non-carnivorous, which is why all of these ancient peoples were vegetarian. You can't have a, a carnivore at the top of the food chain and then think that you, you will have a peace on earth. You have to, to have a, a, a being who is harmless so that all of the other beings will feel safe. And so it's, it was this that was the, uh, the impetus 
for creating uh, cultural forms, forms of social organization that would attempt to actualize this. But of course, in the attempt to actualize it, the potentiality was lost. And because it was in a time in which the vibrational uh, frequency of the world as it was, was in the grip of the ego consciousness, it, these ideas became degraded and defiled and turned into their opposites. And so they failed as, a, as an effort to bring about a Sat Yuga. And it's important for us to learn from that failure if we want to succeed in accomplishing that. But in order to even be able to, uh, to be in, in the, the league in which one could contemplate seriously such a matter, one has to have eliminated one's own uh, egoic tendencies, the tendency to fall into maya, under maya, rather than being a master of maya, which is being the magician. With the magus. What's interesting in terms of recent, uh, this is a diversion, but I'll tell you because I found it interesting, uh, that uh, the Buddha, who, who is remembered as Gotam, Gotama, uh, that his original name was Gomata. And uh, he was uh, a, a member of the order of the Magi. And he was invited to a particular area of the Aryan race that would now be called uh, Persia or even Babylon in, in, in those days. Uh, and he was invited to be its philosopher king. But his uh, approach to kingship was too idealistic. It was too nonviolent. And uh, political enemies... Uh, ended up overthrowing him, and, uh, and, the, and the man who took over was named Darius the Great. According to himself, he was the Great. <laughs> Which shows you exactly uh, the difference between a Buddha and uh, ascension being. Uh, but Darius was uh, someone who actually uh, valued philosophy, so he didn't kill uh, Gomat. He sent him away secretly, and, uh, and Gomat turned, changed his name to Gotam. Now, what does Gotam mean? It, it, the Go means bright light, and the Tam means darkness. Tamasic comes from that, right? So here is the unification of the light and the dark. He is, he is expressing that this is who he is, is that coincidentia appositorum. And, and he, his name now, Gotam, uh, he goes eastward to the farthest reaches of the Aryan uh, communities in China, and he begins teaching there. And his name gets mispronounced from Gautam to Lao Tan, and he is remembered as Lao Tan, who we remember now as Lao Tzu. Tzu is a, a, a simply a, a title for sage, but. The Buddha was actually Lao Tzu. And there's a lot of evidence now about this. I'm not making this up. You know. <laughs> Others might be, but I'm not, and, and it's documented pretty well. 
and and so we, we have this being who who creates a number of uh, of religious movements along the way they aren't that they're actually political intentions and and Lao Tzu's ideas are of course uh, transformed by Confucius into a much more social order of the use of the Tao. Tao and Dharma are the same word. But it's that understanding that if you're in the emptiness at the very center, then the political realm will revolve around you if you don't do anything. If you're in that state of perfect stillness and peace, then there will be order in the periphery. And all of the radii that come from the center of the circle will be able to express that same wisdom and adapt it into the political and social and economic realms of society so that you can, you can create a hypersphere which is controlled at the center by an egoless intelligence. So this is the, the basic idea of the social form. And this is what Taoism has been attempting to express, although it went through the same uh, loss of, uh, uh, well, loss of, of Taoist sages who could uh, turn it into a reality. And so the reason that none of this could be made into a, a reality on the phenomenal plane is that once someone falls into egoic consciousness, they lose all of that potentiality and all of the silence and the unchanging stillness and the imperturbable serenity and the wisdom that is required to, to lead, and they fall into the illusion that they are Darius the Great. You know, or Cyrus the Great, or Alexander the Great. Why they're all great? How did that happen? And and uh, what did they do with that greatness? They started wars and uh, and killed a lot of people. So this is not uh, the way to grow a kingdom of heaven. But this was at least the attempt of those who were at that level of consciousness to attempt to help the world which was not uh, helpable at that point. Now we're in a very different situation because everybody, with, you don't need to be a Buddha to see that the world is coming to an end. The, 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 uh, the, not only is the uh, environment exhausted, but the human intelligence is exhausted. The creativity is exhausted. Uh, there is no more potency left. It's all been used up. The whole world is suffering from impotence of every sort. And in the desperation of trying to prove they have some power left, they will use the only uh, things they have, which are very gross and military and, uh, and destructive. And so there is a, uh, there's an urgency of a different kind of, of a situation that is being faced now that I would say only Buddhahood, but Buddhahood not of one Buddha teaching, but of a, a massive number of Buddhas who arise, who can change the entire fantasy that we think is reality if we're not in a Buddha state of consciousness. Because only that level of consciousness that knows that this is fantasy, it's not a reality, has the power 
to change it in a way that can produce an entirely different trajectory of history. But that level of consciousness, to be real, requires the complete fulfillment of the development of our consciousness from the illusion into the real. And so that is, I would say, the ultimate need of the hour. If anyone wants to help the world, the, the world which is your fantasy, the only way to do that is to help yourself out of that world and into the real. So that, uh, to me, is the real teaching of the Buddha. By the way, one of the names of Buddha, or, or the... Uh, nicknames, I guess, uh, is Tathagata. And it's an interesting word. You have Tat, you know, from Om Tat Sat, Tat, uh, that. The word that is simply the translation of Tat. But what is that? That refers to ultimate reality that can't be described in any other word. It's, it's the inconceivable. It's, it's the ultimate real. So Tathagata can either mean tat agata or tata gata. You can, you can cut the, uh, the word at either point. Uh, and and it one, if you cut it one way, it means that has come. And in the other, it means that has gone. Or you could say he has gone into that, and now he's that. Watch out. Uh, or that is coming, and uh, and it's it's like the nothing that is coming at the end of that movie. What was it? Uh, Never-ending story, right? Well, the nothing does end the story, but it also creates the potentiality for a new story. And that story was always already written, right? He, he discovers the character going through it discovers that he was already there. He's simply repeating himself. He's simply doing now in what he thinks is reality what his fantasy has already laid out and, and, uh, and made teleologically his future. But it was already there from the past because both of the past and the future are contained always in the fantasy that's never ending and never beginning but you can come out of the fantasy and awaken and create a new one. So, the first question that everyone has to answer is this, are you an entity? Or is the belief in entityhood for you, really, really, not just theoretically, is it recognized as a fantasy? If you're an entity, what kind of an entity are you? Because today, the entity that you're supposed to be, according to postmodern belief systems, is you're a machine. That's what the whole transhumanist thing is. You're a computer. You're, you're this, this incredibly complex machine. And uh, because this machine, being made out of meat, has a shelf life, we can put you into a machine made out of titanium. We can up, uh, upload all of your thoughts into a computer, and you can live forever as the repetition of those thoughts. That sounds like a hell realm. 
fortunately, your consciousness won't go into that computer, and it'll it'll just uh, you know pretend to be a robotic imitation of you. <clears throat> but maybe you are already a robotic imitation of you. <clears throat> so if you're not a machine, what are you? Are you a ghost? Are you a ghost in a machine? That's another popular view. Then you're a Cartesian. Or are you that which is inconceivable and cannot be conceptualized? But if you are that which cannot be conceptualized, that means that you cannot know yourself through thought. You certainly can't know yourself through action. At a very low level of intellectual development, people want to know themselves through sensory development and becoming athletes and, and, and uh, dealing with the world at a physical level. If you're a machine, then that naturally is how you would develop your potentialities physically. But if you're not the machine, what are you then? Are you a mind? A lot of people will think they're a mind and they'll go to get as many PhDs as they can and develop their mind to the ability that they can beat anyone in a debate and, and you know, the, the whole thing is about proving you're more, you have a higher IQ than anyone else or you can get more Nobel Prizes or whatever it is you're, you're going for. <clears throat> but are you a mind? Is, is that really what intelligence is? Because there are a lot of very stupid geniuses in terms of philosophy. I mean, we, we've studied Slavoj Žižek, and you look at him, and he's brilliant. Uh, but look at how anxious he is. He's a wreck. And, and, and how high has the, the development of his... I, I like Slavoj, by the way. I, I don't say this with any pejorative feeling. I think he's... Uh, uh, he's He's, he's a lovely soul who is doing his best, but, but from within that construct that you can only think your way out, and therefore the only thing he can think of is communism. You know, this has been the whole problem of the 20th century. Once you believe the world is made of machines, then you can only use your reason in, in a materialist frame of reference. And the, the highest development of materialism would be dialectical materialism. <clears throat> but that certainly hasn't worked. If, if we use the dream of reason to serve that goal, we're, we're going to end up with more Stalins, but we're not going to end up with more Christs or Buddhas. Okay, so if you're not <clears throat> a ghost in a machine, what are the other options? Two other popular options are these. One is you're a hologram, or, or at least a, an appearance within a holographic construct. Uh, the idea then, though, either it's that there is some superior race that's holographically projecting this particular world, uh, but then we'd have to, to figure out, well, who's projecting them into being, because aren't they also a hologram, and you get the infinite regress problem. So the only way out of that would be a self-produced hologram, which is called a dream. And so if the world is a dream and you are the dreamer, then your power to change the dream, if you become lucid in the dream, if you become awakened, a Buddha in the dream, would uh, be the 
would offer the prerogative of changing the course of the dream. But we would also have to say that in, in uh, consideration of the duality, that everyone here has their own consciousness, their own intelligence, that's not an illusion, even though it's my dream, but I recognize that within my dream, there are an infinite number of other dreams that are being played out. Everyone here has their own world. There isn't just one world. And so if this dream is going to be changed, it has to have distributed its vibratory resonance in a way that is acceptable to, uh, to the highest level of coherence of everyone in the dream so that there would be an agreement. Okay, let's all dream this, right? It, there can't be a dictatorship of the Buddha who determines the dream for all the non-Buddhas. Isn't, that isn't going to happen. So there is a democratic reality to the fact that everyone will be able to determine the, the nature of the dream to some extent. But the highest level of coherence, because everyone yearns for coherence, even if they are, are stuck in, in an emotional kind of blindness, there is a, an urge to come out of it because knowledge is power, clarity, uh, truth, intelligence yields more power than stupidity and more joy and, and more uh, capacity for creative uh, options in changing reality. So if one can realize that one is the inconceivable dreamer of the dream and not a character or an entity in the dream, and that the dream is a fantasy that's changeable, one can find the key to white magic. Okay, so I'm going to sum up the obstacles. Okay, the seven, naturally there are seven obstacles to the practice of white magic. The first one is identifications. <clears throat> There's a tendency in the mind to want to know who you are on the level of having a self-image. And the first self-image or images we get are from our parents. And their image of who we are and what kind of a being we are, whether we are the, the new messiah or a brat who I'm sorry I gave birth to, uh, or a little of each, uh, those self-images 
become the original uh, state that the ego uses in order to understand how to relate to others in this world that it thinks it has been born into as a human person. So uh, the tendency then to identify with those who are most successful and most popular will become one's uh, way of trying to grow out of the original identifications which trap one into a very small world, a very small frame of reference that was entirely devoted to getting the approval of the parents. But if you need to get the approval of other people in your social group, you're also going to have a very limited uh, sense of self-identity. Anytime you're trying to fit in anywhere, you're going to be giving up who you are for who you think others want you to be in order to uh, be able to get along. So this tendency to identify in order to feel like you're accepted and that you are uh, uh, safe in, in a situation uh, will alienate you ever further from your true nature. You can also get the rebellious identifications. I'm going to be the opposite of those people. I hate their guts and I'm going to turn into... Uh, the opposite, but you're still going to end up identifying as an opposite and, and still be stuck in a very limited frame of reference in which you can only do that or think that which fits the self-image. You can't have a thought beyond that because then you would depersonalize, which is the reason why when people are afraid of, of too much information and, and they can crack the, the identification, and if they don't know who they are beyond the identification, they can go into a psychotic breakdown. <clears throat> so the first thing we have to do is get beyond that tendency to create an artificial imaginary entity in the mind that we then try to behave as, to fulfill a role. So the, the second is the tendency toward unconsciousness. One doesn't want to become too conscious. Because if you become too conscious, first of all, you'll realize that whatever self-image or self-concept you have is not you. And you will, you will constantly be uh, out of sync with yourself. You, and you won't know uh, what you want or who you are. And there will either be... A, a constant attempt to create a new identification, or <clears throat> there will be a, uh, a sense of being swamped by all of the, the fantasies that are subconscious uh, and all of the collective projections on you that you won't be able to be immune from because you, you are in a state of, uh, of lack of a real identity, a real true understanding of self. <clears throat> and so that leads then to the third problem, 
which is censoring of information that would lead to more consciousness. So we actually install an agency within the ego that tunes out information that we don't want to hear. Some of you may be tuning out right now what I'm saying because it, it's not something you, your ego wants to know. How many are doing that? <laughs> and you see, you can't even know when you're doing it because then you wouldn't be able to do it. So the ego has to have layers of self-deception in order to get away with not growing and not changing and holding on uh, to certain belief systems and certain other people who, uh, who give you uh, feedback that, that gives you an enjoyable self-image. That's why people love being grandmothers and uh, good uncles, you know, and uh, philanthropists and all of this kind of thing, because I will get a positive gaze, you see. So the ego's need for approval is a life or death matter. It's not just, oh, I don't care if they like me or not. No, it's, it's really a serious matter. And, uh, and if you fall into a situation where you don't get that gaze back or the, the person you depended on for your affirmation or validation uh, dies or uh, changes their attitude, that's critical. That's why uh, what sends people into uh, therapy more than anything else is either the death of a loved one or a divorce or, or uh, uh, an empty nest, the child leaving the only one who ever loved you unconditionally, at least you thought that was the case, uh, gone, and then you find out they hate your guts anyway, and they never write to you even on Mother's Day or Father's Day, right? So uh, it, it's that loss that becomes the, the tragedies of people's lives in the ego level. And, and so they are trapped and chained to the need for approval. And this is the whole uh, reason for the meat market of love affairs and all of that, because you, you, you've got to get your fix of, uh, of getting uh, a good self-image constantly, because you can't produce that goodness internally. There are too many other dark fantasies to do that. <clears throat> so the sensor keeps you in a state of not having an adequate amount of information to navigate reality. And, uh, and that leads to what I'm going to call today heterostasis. I sometimes have referred to it as homeostasis, but actually after Gilles Deleuze and what we've been talking about as uh, the repetition of difference, we, we need to understand that what the ego does to deceive itself is to repeat the same patterns as it did before in order to get the same kind of gazes and the same kind of results, but in a slightly different way so it doesn't realize that it's just repeating itself. Okay? So, so it, it creates subtle and slight differences, but the underlying themes of life uh, keep on repeating and one ends up falling into a very similar hole all the time but in maybe better neighborhoods you know but always there will be that same uh, uh, ending of remorse or regret or disappointment or whatever because it's impermanent you're depending on something that won't always be there 
for your stability. So if you don't build your life on a rock that is really stable, but on sand that is going to erode, you're not going to have a very happy uh, future and you won't get insurance. So if you want the real insurance, which only comes from Buddhahood, then you have to uh, build your life on that, which is not so easy to do. And this, of course, leads to the greater, more global problem of incoherence. You can't think clearly. You literally use your ability to lose your ability to think clearly. You don't have enough information. You censor information that would uh, contradict your preconceptions and belief systems. And uh, you, you have so much investment in the emotional need for approval and for the, the passion of, uh, of the uh, enactment of some kind of relationality that will give a cheap thrill that you cannot think coherently about the true nature of the situation that you're in. And that incoherence then leads to glitches. It leads to not being present. It, it leads to forgetfulness. It'll lead to Alzheimer's eventually. It, it leads to that inability to function that then uh, creates even more problems for one. And all of this is based on dualistic perception, which is at the root of the whole problem, that you have divided the world into subject and objects. And so long as you do that, you can't get out of the trap. All of these obstacles, because they are interdependent, they are part of the pratitya samutpada, which was another teaching of Buddha, the codependent co arisings, that you will not be able to escape from the uh, continuing of the repetitious cycle in, in which no matter what you try to do to ameliorate your situation, you will find yourself still as an entity that is dependent on the other and that, uh, and that cannot trust or love the other or, uh, or, or even know the other as they really are because of your own incoherence and tendency to unconsciously project. And ultimately, all of that is based on the, the simple principle of reification. Re is a, a term, I think it's Latin, res, res publica, the public thing. It's a thing. It's to turn reality into things, to turn yourself into a thing, an entity, again. So it comes back to that one basic flaw in consciousness. If you can undo that one flaw of reification, you're free. All the rest of them will dissolve. You don't have to work your way through all seven. All you have to do is get rid of the tendency to reify. But try it. It's not so easy. But it can be done. It, it is literally a paradigm. And once you've broken through into a paradigm shift out of reification, 
into the recognition that whatever you're seeing as objects are your projections of a fantasy and your recognition that that fantasy is not good for you and is not reality and that you have the ability to transcend it and that's where the magic is, then you'll be able to achieve freedom and Buddhahood. I think I'm out of time and that pretty much wraps up what I wanted to express this morning. But do we have any questions on any of that? Mm -hmm. What is a thing? What is a thing? Ah, that's a very good question. Well, if you want to start etymologically, thing is a, a congealing of a think. Right? So it is a thought that gets projected as if it's an object. Right? But it's an image but it's an image that will take form literally in, in three or four dimensional uh, holographic phenomenal plane uh, unreality as if it's an object that has an independent capacity to resist your desires. Right? And so we create a world full of resistances and yet we created it, you see? That's the, the self-destructive uh, tendency of the ego. We produce our own hell. And heaven is when we turn the things into things again and then decide, well, let me just rethink it. Let me turn this water into wine. You know? <laughs> Jesus did it, hey. Uh, and, and it can be done. But it can only be done when you're at that level of consciousness in which there are only the thought waves and there is no tendency of, of things uh, to be, to be uh, projected by anyone in the space. This is what quantum physics found out. If we really want to accomplish this, the collective consciousness has to be vibrating at that level where we all know that we're just thinking this. This is a collective fantasy. Hello, why don't we turn ourselves into avatars and you know, make this a beautiful kingdom of heaven? right here, right now. If we were all willing to do that and, and would affirm that uh, and, and be at that vibrational re resonance, it would happen, okay? But are we willing to do that? That's the only question that is at the core of the uh, feasibility of a spiritual revolution. But you have to have uh, a group that, that is coherent enough and, and in sufficient resonance without interference patterns that that, that uh, uh, freedom from constructs in which the flow of the creative imagination that pours equally through all of us produces a world that everyone agrees is the most enjoyable possible world. And once there is that agreement on what dream do we want to create, that's the reality we'll find ourselves in. Try it. That's what, in a way, is the entire intention of this project that we're in here. But to get there, we've got to get rid of all of these obstacles. So I hope everybody's on board, because uh, this, I don't think, not only can happen, but it will happen, because it must happen. We must awaken, uh, and, and we will be awakened whether we want to or not, because we are fantasies.
and the mind of the one who is dreaming us is going to turn us into Buddhas and avatars. And that's really why everybody was brought here, even against your will, no doubt. Namaste. Thank you for listening to the Spiritual Teachings with Shunyamurti podcast. For more information on programs and retreats, click on the calendar section of our website, www.satyoga.org. Our work is made possible by the generous support of our listeners, viewers, and members. To make a donation, please visit the donate page of our website. We thank you for your support in our mission to share this timeless wisdom with the world. Namaste.